Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with John Dean. John Dean is a postdoc research fellow at UCSD and received his PhD in molecular and integrative physiology at the University of Michigan, where he published a landmark 2019 study on DMT. During our conversation, we talk about how and why John became interested in DMT, the details of his 2019 study, Rick Strassman's 2001 book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule and what Strassman found after giving nearly 400 doses of DMT to roughly five dozen volunteers. John is quick to note how little we understand about consciousness and the mind, and how our world is created in our brains. He discusses the bizarre, rather consistent details that many who take DMT report, and we speculate as to the role that this simple chemical might have in making what we call reality, along with the anecdotal stories of those who believe that its modulation can create a portal into another. I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Dean. John Dean, it is a real pleasure to have you on the show. I've been interested in the subject we're going to be talking about for a long time. Welcome, man. It's great to meet you. Yeah, yeah, same. I would love to start with a basic question to you. I know you're a scientist, a former musician, maybe a current musician as well still. How in the hell did you get interested in the subject of what we're going to talk about today, which is DMT? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, I mean, so, you know, I, I have always been really keen on science in grade school and high school and whatnot. I didn't really, when I started college, think that I would, it never occurred to me, hey, go be you know, a major in chemistry or which, which I was. Um, yes. I mean, I tell the story pretty much the same way every time, but it, it really kind of boiled down to a little bit of an existential crisis mm-hmm. early on in life. I had a, a close friend that died out of nowhere. Um, young, you know, we were like 19 and yeah, for whatever reason, that just kind of hit me, um, it hit me pretty hard. And, it was it was also like right around the time you know where you're experimenting with with consciousness and uh you know so all that kind of it it all factored into to one another and i just became fascinated by the idea that the brain is complicated to the point where you can you can take a compound that'll completely change consciousness and change reality um and that there has to be some sort of neurological, at least correlate of that. And there wasn't a whole lot of research on that. And so that, that kind of sent me down the path of of changing a major to chemistry. Well, I didn't really have a major at that point. So uh, I started taking like psychology courses. And I was playing music, playing in bands along that time as well. And so then I kind of got through all the psychology courses that were interesting to me, which most of them had like uh, abnormal or like biological correlate to them or like un- underpinning to the curriculum. And then uh started taking chemistry and, and really enjoyed that a lot. Always liked organic chemistry. And then through my reading and through my studying, came to find that DMT is uh, present in bodily fluids and in humans and in other mammals and that it's literally like the same molecule that when you take it exogenously, you have these very powerful, bizarre experiences. And all I was really, at least contemporarily investigating why DMT is present in the body from a scientific perspective. And I mean, it fascinated me one. And then two, it just seemed like, you know, you could do these types of studies, right? You, if you're able to quantify DMT, which it was clear that you could, even if it was kind of crude and the studies never really hammered it down, um, so to speak, but it was a starting point, you know, so that, that kind of got me 
into what I did for my master's and PhD, which was look at uh, rodent models for quantifying endogenously generated DMT within the living rat brain mm. specifically. And we use that approach because we would be able to compare it to known neurotransmitters using these like bread and butter analytical chemistry techniques. So able to sample the fluid right out of the living brain of a rat, which circumvented sort of all of the literature that said, oh, well, DMT gets broken down really quick, you know, and, which it does, it seems, in, in, the, in the blood and the periphery. And nothing was really known about the brain because there weren't really any studies like directly looking in a living brain because in the 50s and 60s, you couldn't really do that. There's like a lot of postmortem stuff and radio labeling precursors and tossing it into tissues and things of this nature. And then say, so, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, molecular biology sort of caught up. You could clone the enzymes that have been shown to be able to biosynthesize it. So we kind of took a multimodal approach to understanding the distribution of those enzymes in the rat brain and and sampling living brain fluid. Mm. So that's kind of the <laughs> what what brought me to my PhD at least. And then now I'm I'm doing human clinical trials, like we talked about a little bit. Yeah. Uh, on psilocybin for chronic phantom limb pain. And then soon to be doing uh, continuously infused DMT studies as well. So those will be launching within a couple of months if we're if we're really lucky uh, mm. with the regulatory stuff. But we're we're getting closer to to getting that off of the ground here too at UCSD. I want to clarify a couple of things for the audience. When you say yeah, that endogen- was winded. <laughs> that, no, that was great. I think I think for just it, to define terms, when you say endogenous DMT, you mean it's naturally created in the human animal and in other mammals as well. Uh, if I understand that correctly, that it's it's found throughout the human body. This is a lot of what I think your 2019 study indicated. And I also wanted to dig into the story you started with, which was your friend dying at at 19. How do you think that that influenced the trajectory of your life from then to now? Yeah. uh, So yeah, the first part's correct, right? So endogenously, endogenous DMT, it means it's just, uh, it's naturally occurring. So it's not like you smoke it, you know, it's, it's what you can what you can measure without doing the drug. Like it's mm. already being produced, it seems like in the body by by some sort of sort of known mechanism, but not not really known that well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that and then um, I mean, you know, it's just kind of well, I mean, it made me question reality, honestly. You know, it made me say, well, it, <laughs> we we don't really have a clue what's going on uh, <laughs> with with reality, with the brain, with life, with death. Uh you know, no one really knows what that is, and there's so much research on, uh, in, in science. In science, there's so much research on keeping people alive, which mm. is fantastic research. Mm. <laughs> it's a very, very valuable to be alive, and and very grateful for that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was it, I, I was just like, wow, no one really knows too much about what happens when you die, at least from a scientific perspective. Obviously, because when you die, like materialism sort of goes out the window for what we know, right? Mm. So it's kind of hard to to measure that, but you can measure the process and, and things that are related to it. You know, there's just, it's hard to find those types of studies. So there isn't a ton out there on that. Mm. There's a great Carl Jung line, which I love a, about this, uh, which I heard a couple of years ago, which is life is a short pause between two great mysteries. Uh, which I think is maybe related to some degree to your, you know, curiosity, especially in the face of someone close to you uh, dying. I want to go into a little bit of the chronology of, you know, knowledge about DMT. And in preparation for this interview, I was you know reading, rereading Rick Strassman's book DMT: The Spirit Molecule, and just getting more familiar with um, some of the specifics of what happened when as that people began to learn about DMT as a as a molecule. And just to set the table with some of the history, I'll, I'll give a couple of, of points and you, you're welcome to correct me if any of this is is wrong. But 
my understanding is that the Canadian chemist Richard Mansky synthesized DMT for the first time in 1931. In June 1965, a German research German research discovered and quantified DMT in human blood and urine. I think you were referencing that a little bit earlier about um, DMT being known to be a part of human bodily fluids. Strassman, it seems like really, and I think I've heard you use this phrase about his work, ripped the door off of psychedelic research or reopened the door uh, for psychedelic research with his his uh, DMT research at the University of New Mexico in the 90s. Maybe I can just give this to you. And I, I'm assuming in your journey to where you are now, that that man and potentially that book had an influence on you. What What do you remember resonating about Strassman and his work that, you know, interested you in general? Yeah. So that book is definitely, the uh, was huge in my trajectory. Uh, Rick's book, uh, the MTV script molecule. So right around that time, like when I was, I mean, that's how I found out about the MT. Mm. I, I read that book. I don't remember how I found the book, to be honest. I might've just been like serendipity at a bookstore. I can't even remember, but or maybe I saw it in like Yearwood or something. Because, yeah, this is, I mean, this is close to when it came out. It had been in the mm. early 2000s when I read it. Um, but anyhow, yeah, that book, it was just like communicated very well, the concepts. Rick writes very succinct and mm. communicates like very complicated concepts well, uh, in my opinion, scientifically. But then also isn't afraid to speculate a little bit and 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 be very clear that hey i'm speculating here but this is an interesting avenue that uh, a scientist could venture down if if they uh are, are ready for the long haul you know? yeah. Uh, yeah so yeah so his book was was definitely big in in my trajectory and to be clear you know, rick strassman is a doctor a psychiatrist and a professor as i understand it i mean a, a pretty well credentialed man i want to read a couple of quotes from him, and you talked about speculation. The, you know, the book details his experience of injecting DMT. This is all above board. This was all authorized to, I think, 50 or so subjects 400 times. So five, 400 doses into roughly five dozen volunteers and recording basic biological responses like their heart rate, their blood pressure, but also anecdotal feedback from these people who are reporting what it's like to get a certain quantity of DMT injected into their veins. And maybe before I read uh, some of Rick's speculation, I'd be curious to know if the stories from the people in the book um, still resonate with you as being noteworthy or just extremely interesting. I will just say personally, what got me interested in in DMT is having friends having had this experience of smoking DMT and listening to what they said they experienced. It is just damn peculiar. Um, I don't know how you could listen to some of these stories from otherwise extraordinarily intelligent and sober-minded, rational people and come away from hearing some of these stories not scratching your head a little bit. Um, maybe I'll just give that to you and, and, um, ask if there's any stories from the book or even in your personal life of, you know, your, either your own experiences or friends doing DMT and sparking an incredible amount of wonder and curiosity. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you summarize it pretty spot on. That's, that's what attracted me to the study of it. Um, in particular, because it's found naturally. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that because it's found naturally that that it's involved in near-death experiences and dreaming and, like, some of the, the more uh, out-there theories of, of what it's doing in, in the body and in the brain. Uh, you know, because we haven't really established that scientifically just because it's so hard to really quantify that uh, the, the molecule itself in the body, particularly in humans, which is something that we're working toward, um, assays that would be more reliable in, in humans. And so that's kind of would be the gold standard to establish any physiological role for DMT, let alone 
some of the more speculative and and you know admittedly a little bit sexier mm. hypotheses for it um but since the overlap is there since there are there are dreamlike qualities to a dmt trip or there are overlaps with some near-death experience reports with with dmt and since it's found naturally i mean it's it's not exactly uh non-scientific to make mm. that connection like that's how science works in my opinion that's how it works for me anyways i think that the the psychology and the, and the experiential component of of any type of neuroscience is particularly important to understanding how a certain area of the brain works because otherwise it's just a lump of flesh right mm. so depending on the if you're talking about psychology right and, and experiential content but um but yes, yeah, so it's not really known what what endogenous DMT is doing, but those those reports certainly are enticing to to think that that something that's so similar to serotonin, which is a major neurotransmitter, and this is also one of the findings in our 2019 paper, was that when we measured and compared DMT in the rat brain, in the living rat brain, with these microdialysis probes, they're called, we were kind of surprised too. Um, to see that it was in concentrations comparable to serotonin, about half of serotonin. Mm. Um, you know, there's more to it than that, obviously. You know, there's, there's you got to zoom in a little bit to look at the pharmacology. And, and you know, th- those were some of the, uh, some of the discussions that stemmed from the paper were, well, is, is this actually a concentration that would necessitate any physiological function? Um, I'm not a pharmacologist, but I would say that if it's their half of serotonin, it, it's likely doing something in the brain, mm. whether that's related to like processing any sort of like information or, or consciousness, who knows, you know, it could, it could be an anti-inflammatory role. Uh, there's been studies that have shown that it's helpful for stroke, at least in rota models. And then People are carrying out clinical trials right now, early phases of administering DMT to people that have had a stroke mm-hmm. um, to, to try to expedite recovery. Um, so it's really not known what's going on there. But you know, to go back to the, the original question, I mean, it's, it's very peculiar that you can have, you can increase the amount of DMT in the brain to a large level and, and have such strange effects uh, more so than if you increase the amount of, of serotonin, uh, you know, with uh, something like MDMA or something mm. like that. What what do people? And again, I know you're a scientist, and you, you know, part of that ethos is not overstating what you have high confidence in believing and can show evidence for. But just anecdotally, from the stories that you've heard in books and in your own your own life perhaps what do people report that you know when this from i think it was terence mckenna i I was listening to an interviewer dennis dennis mckenna who mentioned that part of what appeals to him about dmt is its simplicity as a molecule and that you just noted it's uh, how common and the level at which it seems to be endogenous in the brain People who get a spike of DMT inserted into their bodies, what kind of stories do they tend to report in your experience when they seem to go somewhere else? Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're pretty variable stories, right? I mean, they're out there. Um, so we haven't, we haven't started to, to do our studies yet. Um, but, I mean, the reports are fairly... There's a lot of a lot of commonalities, um, and something that pops up a lot in the literature on high doses is having some sort of contact with uh, what seems to be a an entity that is potentially freestanding and you know autonomous on in its own right in a, in a different dimension or something like that. And that's pretty common. It pops up a lot. Uh, there's some debate whether that's a cult, potentially a cultural thing, um, and 
That's a, a very interesting question in and of itself. Uh, I remember I did a, a talk not too long ago in Arizona, I think it was, in Phoenix, and somebody asked a really a really good question. <laughs> I think I gave some smart-ass answer because I was like, man, I don't have an answer to that. Uh, but it, it was regarding like uh, with people that uh, speak different languages, has it ever been kind of like investigated what the the sort of link like what language was being communicated by because communicate like two-way communication with entities is very common in the dmt experience so something like that i think would would be an interesting question that would kind of hint at like the cultural significance of it um but i mean yeah bizarre stories but i think a, a pretty common thread seems to be entity phenomena and yeah, so I mean, I, I'm just kind of dipping my feet in that world now and, and starting to understand uh, more of the, the literature on the experiential components because I was living in the molecular biology world for so long with the endogenous stuff and now that we're ramping up to be administering DMT in humans. Um, yeah, we want to we wanna understand everything related to safety and, and proper dosing and then also the experiential component is going to be huge in the investigation so we're very interested in in the types of experiences that people have particularly in the in the domain of like entity contact and, and things of this nature i and have just really basic science questions like how how does i mean we're, we have the potential to really change the visual system right with with dmt and in at a basic level, understanding like what happens in the brain to juxtapose that with just like normal visual processing is is something that we're interested in doing. Um, and then, of course, you know, we a lot of the studies we do at UCSD are uh, geared toward alleviating chronic pain. Mm. We have a, a very large pain research community here, so we're particularly interested in in things like like I was saying earlier, like DMT for stroke and, and other pain conditions that don't have a lot of, uh, don't have a lot of options. So, yeah. So it's a pretty, pretty big study and out of the gate, it'll be in, in healthy individuals, but uh, yeah, we, we hope that it can help some people for sure. That's the main, the main goal. And then to do the cute neuroscience and tandem. Yeah. I, I didn't know this before preparing for this conversation that apparently there is some evidence or a significant amount of evidence that uh, subconscious quantities of DMT also seem to have potentially some antidepressant um, characteristics or effects on people similar to what many people report on on psilocybin, which I, I wasn't aware of. And I want to get into your research at Michigan and... Um, some other subjects as well, but just to pause for a second and think about a person who has never heard about the subject or knows very little about DMT or the psychedelic world in general, I have to imagine for someone who is leading these studies, it's probably a delicate dance to um, speak cautiously so that you can back up what you are claiming with evidence while not sounding crazy. Uh, because so much of what I came across in the last few days in preparation for this, if I were to, I think, tell an average American or average person what these people claim to be experiencing and what some of the more speculative theories are about DMT in particular, that these people are crazy could be a common reaction that a lot of people would have. How have you dealt with that for yourself? I mean, obviously, Rick, just in reading his book, he clearly was extremely interested in learning about the anecdotes of what people were experiencing under the influence of DMT, but he had to get funding um, and do this legally. So I, I'd love to put that to you to speak to a general you know, public or a general population audience about how you think about that. Yeah. Okay. That's a lot. Um, well, you know, I watched the Super Bowl and I feel crazy. So it's, it's a very, a very relative thing, right? Fair enough. But, yeah. Uh, but, 
but I mean, I, you know, so we, we just want to do it right. We want to do it. And, and by right, I mean, most importantly, safe, um, mm. you know, so that's what keeps me up at night and has <laughs> for the past several nights. I'm sure. Uh, is, is just making sure that, that we're doing this safely uh, across the map. Um, you know, we understand the responsibility of, of, of keeping the people that are participating in all of our studies with psychedelics, uh, making sure that they're coming out of the study benefiting in some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. And so that includes, you know, having a team of, of monitors, like therapists on hand that work with our participants from the beginning all the way through the end of the study, uh, whether it's for the clinical outcomes or in the case of the DMT work initially, just in, and not for a clinical indication, just otherwise it's healthy individuals that are participating. Uh, so that's number one. Um, and then, you know, number two, I mean, we just, we're geeks. We want to know how the brain works also. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the neuroscience in general, like no matter what question I feel like in neuroscience you're asking, I mean, yeah, we ask these like, crazy questions about consciousness but even if you dive down the the periscope of of any like like kind of isolated neuroscience question like how does vision work or how mm. does hearing work or you know isolating the different sensory systems or you, you get into some some pretty crazy stuff like it's it's fascinating right that that this lump of flesh can can do all these wild things and generate these amazing experiences and and animals in general, right? Mm. Not to just take it to the human level. Um, yeah. So I mean, let's see. Where am I going with this? I mean, so step one, right? Safety, and then step two, just try to have a question that's very that's just very grounded. I mean, we just want to do like concrete stuff. We don't want to jump ahead too far. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, we're interested, like like Rick Strassman and, and these more, these less mundane questions that, because it's, it's kind of hard not to be when you're talking psychedelics, especially DMT, since it is endogenous, but, and, and you take a big bowl of something and you have these wild, wild experiences. What does that say about how the brain works to generate consciousness? And, but you just, you know, you can't jump too far ahead, right? Because yeah. we have no idea what, how consciousness really works. Um, so it's, yeah, you, you, we try to stay grounded in, in the types of questions that we're asking, you know, so for like our DMT study, we just want to ask some fundamental questions about how, how vision works and how the, the body or how the brain produces vision and, and how uh, a visual perception differs from something like imagination so things like that. So these these questions that you can actually kind of get at the the grounded like materialist root of the question, and that that's like a springboard to ask some more, some wild or some crazier questions. And for things like endogenous DMT, they're not. You know, there, there's ways that you can ask those wild questions too. So like if there's a, a way to if there's a way to measure DMT in a particularly in a, in a human brain or in the in the body non-invasively and and get a good read on it, so that you can reliably say like concentrations were at this before some intervention and concentrations were at this after some intervention. You know, if you if you had a decent temporal resolution, you could you could start to do simple things like track it across the sleep wake cycle, and this is something even in rodents that can be done right now um, with with the right funding and, and the right study. Um, you know, so if you want to ask the question, is is DMT potentially involved in dreaming? Which is an interesting question, seeing as we we do know that it's very similar to melatonin, which is kind of involved in the sleep wake cycle. Uh, it precursors tryptophan, so like all that funnels into like pineal regulation of melatonin and circadian rhythms and, and whatnot, serotonin even. You know, so you could just track DMT across the sleep-wake cycle in rodents or in humans. Particularly in humans, it would be interesting if you were able to, you know, you were able to correlate 
different aspects of someone's dreaming and REM sleep with DMT release. Mm. So things like that. I mean, most of neuroscience, I, I think, is like pretty correlational, at least with fMRI, like in the brain. You know, you're you're just saying how to how do these how do these voxels and how does this blood flow or VEG like how do how do these frequencies correlate with behaviors? So, um. But it's a start. I mean, it's kind of the the best that we can do right now, and I think things are getting a little more sophisticated uh, with with some of the the rock star like computational neuroscientists out there that are able to develop these pretty wild models of like vision things like that. It's a it's a pretty exciting time to to be doing neuroscience, let alone psychedelic neuroscience. So, so safety, being grounded, being concrete. Uh, personally, you know, I got out of animal research, rodent research to, to try to make more of a, a direct impact and, and people's lives if possible, you know, only here for so long. So if we can do some studies that can be incredibly beneficial to somebody that maybe doesn't have a lot of options, like in our phantom limb pain study, um, you know, it's a, it's an exciting, uh, burden of, of to, to take that on and to, mm-hmm. to make sure that we, we pull it off in all the ways that I just described. So, and then too, being respectful of of the historical roots of of the medicines that we're that we're utilizing, and, and hopefully integrating in the Western culture in the clinic. Um, so that's something that I myself have very little knowledge of, and am trying to work out when I can, and be conscious of that. To, you know, we at our newly launched, so soon to be launched psychedelic center. We at UCSD, we really hope to. We have like a, a whole a, a director for like anthropology that is leading up that a charge of respecting indigenous cultures and yeah, not just saying that. Like actually trying to to work with organizations like Shakruna and Swan that has contacted us that we hope to to keep trying to form some collaborations with and so it's, it's a lot of a lot of different angles yeah lots of ins lots of outs <laughs> a lot of what have yous yeah uh, right i want to read out the what i have gleaned are the three primary uh kind of takeaways from your 2019 um study and i think universally among the people that were interviewed in a documentary that i was watching a couple of days ago about dmt were remarking about uh th- that study being a, a landmark a landmark study or a landmark paper and i, I want to read out what i believe those three takeaways are and and put that put these three to you and have you edit or add anything that you think might be relevant this is a 2019 paper from the university of michigan um which found one that DMT DMT's level in humans is comparable to serotonin and dopamine. Two, the two enzymes that are responsible for DM, DMT synthesis occur in the same nerve cell. And three, cardiac arrest was induced in rodents in the study, which led to a 600% increase in DMT in the visual cortex of the brain. And the question there being, could this explain the near-death experiences that many people report? And I believe you mentioned that some, somewhere upwards of 20% of people who have cardiac arrest report a near-death experience. I don't know if that's a reasonable summary to you of, of that paper, but I, I'd love to get any additional thoughts or clarifications you might want to give on what that paper really showed. Sure. Um, so let me, let me try to go uh, one through three. Um, so the first one, uh, so we, we didn't actually measure DMT in humans in the study. Mm. Um, we measured, uh, enzymatic expression, uh, well, the, the mRNA, uh, you know, so like it goes from, from the mRNA to the protein. Um, and so we did see pretty high expression for the first time in human tissues, uh, human brain tissues. Um, and the frontal cortex, I think, in human brain we found, and in the pineal gland also, uh, of, the, of the enzyme that takes uh, 
tryptamine to dimethyltryptamine. And okay, so that was one. And then two, I think you you said the co-localization. So there's two enzymes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of them is uh, an enzyme that takes tryptophan um, into tryptamine. It's like a decarboxylase enzyme. And it's AADC for short. And that, that enzyme uh, has been known to be present in, in brain tissue for a long time. And then the other one, INMT, um, is the one that, that we saw in the human brain tissue. So in the rats, uh, in the rat tissue, this is all postmortem. So by the way, so there are tissue samples, uh, that have been preserved after, after death. And Mm. then we're able to, to do some, uh, some molecular biology techniques to amplify the, the mRNA that's in the tissues. So the, what's cool about that approach that we took is it's called in situ hybridization. You're able to to go by like a cell by cell level. So you could look within individual tissues and individual cells within those tissues. Yeah, and so that's what we did. So in the humans, we were a little more limited on the samples that we had, and we also unfortunately didn't have the two probes for the human tissues. So we only looked for the INMT. And then in the rodent, this is point two that you were alluding to. In the rodent study, in the rodent tissues, we found in the same cells in the brain, uh, presumably neurons. We didn't have neuronal markers, but uh, they looked pretty neuronal in their uh, architecture. And we saw the in the same cells, we, we found INMT and ADC, which would increase the likelihood that that cell would be able to make DMT. Um, so that's point two. And then three is the, oh, the increase at, at cardiac arrest. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, like when you're doing animal research at the end, you're, you euthanize the animals. Um, and so we w- were given permission to keep monitoring and measuring uh, throughout the death process. And we did see following cardiac arrest uh, for upwards of 60 minutes later um, that the DMT levels increased uh, upwards of like 11 fold actually. Mm. Um, so even more, even more than what we reported because we had a bunch of different strains of rats and we wanted to, to keep it as apples to apples as possible and and look at just within one strain or out because we did see some differences in different strains in, in terms of like neurochemistry which is a completely another thing but interesting <laughs> but anyhow um yeah so i mean we don't know though like what that means uh because you know it's just a fold increase so a lot of you have to like keep in mind like baseline you know just because something goes up 11 fold uh doesn't necessarily mean that so much if it started out low. Um, you know, so the nanomolar concentrations uh, that we reported, that was kind of like novel for the study. Um, because again, like no one thought that it was in like the same nanomolar range as, as serotonin. Um, and in the dying brain, it, 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 it did inc- serotonin increases like big time at death, at least in rodent models, uh, way more than DMT. Hmm. And, but it's interesting. So like, there's a couple of papers uh, from the same group that were actually like before uh, we put out the 2019 study. So the Borgigan lab, GMO Borgigan at at UMich, um, where they looked at neurotransmitter changes and electrical changes in the dying brain. And, and we did too with the DMT study. So, but one of the the take homes I think is that it, it it wasn't just like everything increased, right? So, like we monitored a, a whole slew of different neurotransmitters and neuromodulators and neurocompounds, and it wasn't just like everything, just like the cell like dumped everything out, right? So it seems like you know, it's it's a it's a crude speculation based on not a lot of data, but it seems like that the, it's like a regulated process dying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, point being with the with the fold increases for DMT, I mean, I think it was upwards of like 
ah, man, I have to go back and look. I think the highest we saw was maybe like around like 40, 50 nanomole or something like that. Um, but we didn't report all that data. And, you know, so some of the, the big questions, discussions stemming from that study was if it would actually activate the receptors, right? Because there's like a a functional level that a, that a, a neurotransmitter, a neurocompound or any substance would, would have to meet to be able to, to activate. There's certain assays like EC50, I think it's called, where uh, you would basically see a reaction, whether you're like measuring like calcium changes or, or there's a couple of different ways of doing it. Um, and the DMT to be functionally selective or activate uh, the 5-HT2A receptor. I forget. I think it's something. <laughs> yeah, I haven't thought about this stuff in a while. I'm living <laughs> in like human, human fMRI world now, but I think it's like the lowest is in the range of like 32 nanomolar or something like that. And and what we reported was only like a couple nanomolar, you know, uh, increase. Um, I think the highest in, in the, the study that was published was like, I don't even remember my own study, man. It's been so long, like 10 nanomole or something like that. But so it's really not known, like, is, is that in a psychedelic amount, like, just because it went up 600%? Because when you hear that, you're like, oh my God, 600%. That's like everybody's tripping, right? Like, mm. no idea. The This was a point I wanted to clarify, and I, I believe this is right, but I would love to get your uh, your confirmation or or not on this that. You know, my understanding is that one of the things that's remarkable about the knowledge that DMT is within the human animal is that that is unlike any other known psychedelic, that psilocybin, for example, or LSD, these are exogenous, not endogenous. They're not in the, they're not in our systems by default. Is is that correct? Yeah, to, to the best of my knowledge, it is. Um, yes, I mean, even things like, and the endocannabinoid system and um, endogenous opioid system, which we do a little bit of human research on, on the endogenous opioid system at UCSD. Um, we actually block it while people are meditating. Hmm. And we want to understand if the pain relief that we would see during meditation, um, particularly our recent study in people with chronic low back pain, if, if it's in, involving, if the meditation is engaging the opioid system, then the idea is if you administer naloxone and block the opioid system, you should be able to turn off that pain uh, relief effect from meditation, which wasn't what we saw in the, in the recent study, suggesting that mindfulness is engaging something else to relieve pain. Um, but yeah, in terms of DMT, uh, there's, there's probably, I mean, you know, the the brain's like a soup, right? So it seems like there's other, if not psychedelic molecules. Well, I mean, 5-MeO-DMT has also been reported in in bodily fluids. Um, so it could, it could be that that is also in the brain and in the body naturally. There's just, you know, no one's really doing these studies for whatever reason. Um, it's pretty bizarre that it, that it's not, you know, even even if it doesn't turn out to be what people think it is in terms of, oh my God, it's why we have near-death experiences. Like, it's still pretty fascinating that a molecule that that is such a powerful psychedelic is naturally in our bodies. And understanding why that's the case, I think, would really help us understand the brain a lot better. Yeah. I want to go into some of the, you used this word sexy earlier, sexier. Um, some of the more What's interesting wrong with being sexy, <laughs> some of the, the, the wilder speculations about what might be going on, uh, during these experiences. And I, I referenced this earlier in the conversation about a couple of lines from Rick Strassman that I, I wanted to read out who arguably has more experience with scientific studies of DMT than anyone, at least in modern times in, in America. And I want to read a couple of uh, a quote from him and then a comment with, with a partial quote in it. And this is one from him. This is Rick Strassman, quote, the chemistry of the research subject's brain. This is in reference to the studies that he was doing at the University of New Mexico. 
quote, this, the chemistry of the research subject's brains, which is the organ of consciousness, was being changed by DMT in such a way that they could they could then receive information that we weren't able to receive normally. Then this is another comment from Rick. If one wanted to speculate wildly, one could argue DMT neurotransmitter system, quote, mediates our sense of reality. Um, I've heard similar comments like that. Obviously, this is, I think you would probably agree that this there is a lot of speculation in uh, these kind of comments, but um, I, I want to, you know, maybe move us from the the known scientific studies to some of the the you know wilder speculation that I'm sure you've given a lot of thought to. I remember learning this about Darwin that when he uh, was developing his theory of evolution, that one of the reasons that he was so reluctant to come forward with it is that it felt like he was confessing a murder. I think that's a a direct quote. And his original plan was to wait until his death uh, to release this because it it flied in the face of contemporary knowledge uh, and understanding about the way that the world worked. And obviously, I don't think we're at a level we probably both would agree, or we're not at a level at, at this point to make uh, those sorts of claims necessarily about DMT. But to put on the, the speculation hat for a minute, um, what, what is your, you know, potential hypotheses here about what this molecule really is or might be? And that perhaps with, you know, the studies that you're, uh, doing right now or about to do, uh, could begin to peel back a little bit and increase our knowledge about what might be going on here. Yeah. Um, so Rick, I think he lays it out pretty clear that he's speculating, right? Yeah. Um, he he says if if one were to wildly speculate, and then he <laughs> proceeds to be the one to wildly speculate. It's very Hunter Thompson of him. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think it's I think it's important to think big like that and to have some have some some theories that are exciting and you know they could potentially be dead wrong um but it you know it it inspires people to have uh, imagination uh, imagination and creativity it's like it's so lacking in science kind yeah. of because everybody thinks it has to be rigid and mechanical and materialistic which i mean are sort of important qualities for science also <laughs> Kind of, kind of keeps things grounded a little bit, um, but so we're not there yet, clearly, and we, you know, we're not there yet in terms of being able to answer those questions. Um, I think that it's an interesting hypothesis, and Rick and I have talked about this um, to a, a pretty large degree um, that. There could be much like we talked about the endogenous opioid system, the endogenous cannabinoid system. There could be a system that isn't necessarily the serotonin system that that is engaged by psychedelics. And a prime candidate for that system would be a, an endogenous DMT system, right? Uh, because it's a molecule that has psychedelic properties that exist naturally. So if we understood more about how that compound exist in our bodies and what its physiological role is in our bodies uh that's kind of step one you know before asking the bigger questions but cannabis is psychoactive opioids are psychoactive um and and no one disputes the the presence of those systems in our bodies so i don't think we should write off the potential for dmt to be involved in the response of psychedelics like you know so say you administer and this is an easy study too if you had a well it can be done in rodents right now if you had the funding if you have a way to measure dmt reliably which in rats we do especially at the university of michigan where we conducted those studies and uh my friend nick glinos who who took over a lot of that with my old phd advisor uh 
Dinesh Paul and, and Jimo Borjigan. Um, he has some pretty exciting data that you can pull it up now, like from his thesis, where he replicated the findings that that we found with with DMT with that measurement system of the probes right in the brain. And he took it to a, a slightly higher degree of specificity too. We just did HPLC, um, so uh, high performance liquid chromatography, and it's just a, a analytical chemistry technique of a way that it's like bread and butter to, to measure a compound, like the purity of it or the, the concentrations of it. And then he coupled it to uh, a, an additional technique that like literally looks at like a much more like particle level, so to speak. So it's like HPLC MS is what it's called. So, just you know, it's more it's more sensitive. And what he saw was he, they found very similar to what we found: concentrations of DMT in the living rodent brain, uh, very very similar to the couple of nanomolars that we saw. Um, and he looked; we were looking in the visual cortex, and he looked in the frontal and in the parietal cortex, and saw. And and you could pull up his thesis online. You could you know find the PDF somewhere. Uh, found. DMT levels higher than dopamine in those brain areas. Uh, so having the ability to have that assay, you could do the study where you just administer psychedelics, like say you give give a rat psilocybin and, and then measure changes in DMT. It's a, a scratch the surface type of way of understanding, you know, step one is like, does do DMT levels change? Are they modulated by administration of, an exogenous psychedelic. So it's not really like super mechanistic, but at least it's like you're moving the needle and that's kind of the, the first step in my eyes. Um, and similar things can be done in humans if we had if we had a way to reliably image in a living human brain, like with PET imaging or something like that, um, which we are slowly chipping at here at UCSD. Um, so that'd be kind of like the gold standard. Um, but I, from from Rick, and uh, that's kind of the, the Strassman quote that when you said that, it made me think of our conversations about an endogenous psychedelic system, kind of like the endocannabinoid system or or the uh, endogenous opioid system. Uh, but it's even more intriguing in this case because the molecule is the same molecule that's psychedelic, whereas to my knowledge, the you know, synthetic opioids that are administered uh, and the cannabinoid, the endocannabinoids aren't the same as what's in the plant. You know what I mean? Um, so rather intriguing, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, imagine, speculate, and keep it grounded. Uh, you know, step one is is to do the the really foundational stuff. But you know, if that research doesn't take place, and then you you can't push it forward anymore so it would be very unfortunate if if more groups weren't looking into why the body makes molecules that have psychedelic properties at least in large amounts of exogenous administration it's a very fascinating question for sure I mean, we started this conversation with you talking about how as i understand it at least part of your interest in all of this came from you know knowing someone who died young and probably uh in addition to the the pain i'm sure of losing your friend just looking for answers as to like a child would trying to wonder what it means to be human you know what happens after we die and i i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you i mean in all of your years of working in this field and i'm sure you have conversations like this all the time how has your work in this field and i guess with dmt specifically influenced your your current understanding of how to answer a question like that um i don't know i mean i don't think it really has all that much but i think it's 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 for me personally it's made me kind of and this is pretty common theme to other people that have had powerful psychedelic experiences like something that comes up in the hopkins studies right mm -hmm. or has come up all the time is you know this 
from the participants is this experience of you know taking like a, a hero dose of psilocybin in a clinic was in the top five like most memorable experiences comparable to a birth of a, a child or the death of a parent or something and and so I just my mother just died not too long ago mm. a couple months ago mm, and it yeah, was I'm very sorry. sudden thanks thanks yeah it was very sudden and um you know unexpected she was uh, so we thought relatively healthy um you know so i was there when it happened and and was able to also go into the emergency room and just be present like at her death um and i think that my experiences with psychedelics my personal experiences much better prepared me to be there for that moment um we had to understand that moment a little bit better. Um, or I guess I could say to at least understand the importance of that moment. I mean, I know that everybody that has lost somebody would say, well, that's an important moment, but I wasn't like afraid to be there basically is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? It was, it was just something that was very natural. It was a very psychedelic experience, not quite in the classical sense of, you know, taking a psychedelic, but the effective like qualities and overtones were were there. You know, so I just was kind of there meditating and trying to be as present as I could possibly be for that moment. And so that's the best I can answer your question because that's mm. kind of like I think that's kind of like the experience that has kind of come full circle for me. You know, losing a friend at an early age and then having all these other experiences, researching the brain. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, because we just don't know. <laughs> we could do all this neuroscience and be all smart like. And, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, it's a mystery, right? Um, and it, yes, yeah, so it's, it's still a mystery. <laughs> mm. <laughs> don't understand it much better, but I think uh, maybe don't understand like the uh, the whole thing, so to speak, but just uh have that perspective of maybe being a little more appreciative of it all hmm. do you think that in part comes from an increase for yourself in being comfortable with not knowing the answer um i, I will just say personally that that used to really really bother me and i think the older i've gotten the more i've realized how little i know about almost anything um and part of I think the joy of accepting that is uh, not needing to pretend that I know more than I do and being um, hopefully a little bit more comfortable with, with the unknown. I don't know if that's you know part of what has made some of th these accepting moments easier for you or not. Yeah, I'd say that, that definitely resonates with me for sure. I've kind of just learned to, yeah, to just like <laughs> collapse, right? I just like okay, yeah, you, it's okay to to not know, and uh, and to uh, yeah, it's like it's just like turn the ego off a little bit, right? Turn it down, T mm. tune it down a little bit, and just kind of go with it, and just be in the moment, man, for sure. Yeah. I love that. Maybe we can close. I know we're getting close to the end of our our time together, but I know you know you have a lot of work ahead of you. Uh, and I'm sure studies that you're excited today? about. No, <laughs> hopefully not today. Um, but uh, coming coming up here, uh, I, yeah, it looks like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where where do you think we are right now? I mean, I you know you mentioned oh, that well, the psychedelic study. study I'm in is La Jolla. Being, where are you? <laughs> I'm in Austin. Oh, um, nice, sweet. But in in history, where do you think we are? You know, in where this increasing understanding might go in time um you know i know a lot of universities are opening up psychedelic centers ut austin just opened one down the road from here uh, maybe we could close on kind of your hopes for the future what do you want to study what what's really um exciting you about this field in general yeah i think that in terms of neuroscience um like one of our collaborators the other day when we were talking about the DMT study, I uh, had mentioned, you know, he's like, you're at the, 
at the perfect time in, in neuroscience to mm. to be asking some of these like wild questions about how the brain works and how we could develop these computational models to understand it a little bit better and to understand how psychedelics perturb that and and potentially elicit you know some of the health outcomes etc. Um, yes, I think we're. Yeah, you know, you're always going to say that. Like contemporarily, we're at the best point we've ever we know as much as we've ever known now. Yeah. You know? Um, but I think from a neuroscience standpoint, that's pretty true. You know, so uh, my approach, man, is always to just stay in my lane and you know do what I'm good at. Don't try to like oversell it. Don't don't like take too much out of it. We're just trying to do some like rock solid science, help some people out if we can, and and do it all as safe as possible, and and set it up so that the, that tradition can continue, you know, for hundred years, two hundred years, whatever. And I'm sure it'll evolve into to other things, but obviously, right now the the psychedelic science is a a fairly hot topic. Um, and we just want to make sure that we're doing the research in a rigorous and, and reproducible way so that uh, we can figure out what's going on with it and how to maximize the the, the payoff for, uh, for everybody involved, and, and especially uh, in our clinical trials. So, yeah, For sure. Uh, I think that's a good place to stop. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show and giving me the time. This was fascinating to research and uh, a great conversation. So thanks so much. Hey, I appreciate the invite and always, always down to, to chat. Thanks, man. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.